Shut up, huh? <laughs> That's your new theme music. Okay, nice. So, welcome to the Elixir Roundtable with Dockyard, where the tables are definitely round. Um, I'm Nathan Long. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. And Mike Benz, also senior software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Brian Cardarella, founder of Dockyard. I'm Chris McCord. I write Elixir sometimes. Uh, Dockyard also created Phoenix. Created what now? What's that? What's that thing you made? <laughs> I think I've heard of it. <laughs> um, so we got we got uh, some some stuff we're going to talk about today. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, something that I did on a project uh, here recently. Um, it's about how we're using API tokens. Uh, and specifically dealing with authentication failures. So I actually wrote a post on the Dockyard blog a while back called Tips for Tokens. It talks about kind of the overall sort of token strategy and mentions some of this a little bit, but um, but like just kind of like big picture, the thing, the way we're doing API tokens, we're using the Phoenix token module to sign a value that we hand out to the user. And what we're signing is a map and the map contains the user's ID and their like raw token value that we store on their user row. And I really like that approach because when they send us the, the signed token back and we token verify that and get out the map, we know what their user ID is even if the raw token no longer matches an existing user. Like if, if that value has been changed, we know who they were trying to authenticate as. So I think that's super cool. Uh, the only thing that it, bothers me with is I like get confused about what do I call the token, the signed thing or the raw thing that comes out of it. <laughs> so naming is hard, but I like that, that overall. Um, but I had a request to log authentication failures. And so that could be if somebody doesn't provide a token header at all, or if they provide something that's totally bogus, or if they, you know, if we're able to verify it, but then it doesn't match the user's current token value because we've revoked that. Which might indicate they're actually they've actually stolen that token and they're trying to impersonate somebody. So in all those cases, we want to log that. And the thing that this potentially is premature optimization, but the thing that occurred to me is somebody could hammer us with invalid requests, and that could mean we're writing those because this is still meant to be logged to the database. We we could be writing a whole bunch of records to the database like as fast as they can hammer us with requests. So I didn't want that to become a potential denial of service kind of thing. So what I came up with is a, um, a debouncer gen server. Uh, and the idea is whenever we get an authentication failure, it calls that gen server and says, here's the information that was presented. Um, you know, that could come from a couple of different plugs. One of them like verifies the token and one of them looks up the user and whatever. So uh, here's, here's what we know about this user so far, basically as, in a map. And then, what it's going to do is it's going to gather up those maps into an, like a higher level map where each piece of data is a key and the values are counts. So how many times have we seen a request just like this one? And then periodically write those, which is just every couple seconds, but it could be configured to be whatever. Um, so uh, does, does this all make sense so far? Yep. So. Um, and uh, what it does when it periodically, when it writes, it does a bulk insert. So if we've got, you know, 10 or 100 or whatever, however many different unique values, 
maybe like we got this one five times and this one 100 times or whatever, it's going to bulk insert those, insert, insert those as, as rows all at once. Um, so the basic, the basic state of it, it's got a batch start time that it tracks, which can be nil if, it, if we're not currently doing a batch, if we're just sitting around getting no requests. Um, and, the, and then if, if, uh, if we start a batch, when we, get, when we get one of those logs, we start a new batch. And we uh, use a system monotonic time to set the beginning of the batch time. And, uh, and then there's a duration of the batch in milliseconds that's configured in the application config. So when that, under constant load, we're going to write whenever the max duration is reached. So we'll just say, like, I got another request. I got another request. Every time I get that, I'm like updating the state. And I'm like, now is it time to write? Now is it time to write? OK, yeah, I'm going to write. <laughs> so even if we're getting hammered all the time, we're going to um, we're going to write uh, occasionally. If there's a lull in the um, in the writes, or like if there's a lull in the in the the requests we're getting in, we're still going to write because um, we're using a gen server timeout, which is like when you when you handle cast or handle call, you can do like in this case I'm doing handle cast because the the senders are doing fire and forget they don't care about <laughs> when we write this stuff. Um, so I do like no reply, updated state, timeout. And what that does with, with um, GenServer is if you set a timeout value, you'll say 500 milliseconds. Um, if there's already a message waiting in the mailbox, that does nothing. It's just going to go right to the next message. And if another message arrives 400 milliseconds later, it also does nothing. It's going to handle that and, and just totally forget about your timeout. But if 500 milliseconds pass, then it's going to send itself a timeout message. And then you'll have uh, your... Uh, handle info, I think, for timeout that you'll use to deal with, OK, now that, that lull actually happened. So we write in that case as well. So if there's a if we're under constant load, we write. If we get a, a lull, we write. And then we also use def terminate so that if we get shut down while we still have some state to write, we'll write that, like flush that stuff at the end. Um, so um, the only like other piece there is that the duration of the batch, there's a trade-off there. Like, the longer you make that, the less we're going to be hitting the database. The, the more this is kind of like doing its job to reduce load on the database. But also, the longer you make that, um, the more potential there is for we crash or something and lose all that state that we have, or that we get bloated. Because whenever we write, we clear out our current, all, you know, like throw away all the memory that we have, all, all the requests that we've logged so far. But so if we were to get a whole bunch of requests that are all identical, that's just going to be a large count on that same request. And it's going to be like no memory used, basically. But if we were to get a whole bunch of unique requests, that would be bloating the memory of this gen server. And it, you know that could be a problem eventually. So uh, the more frequently we can write and clear out the state, the less likely we already have that thing bloat memory and, and fall over. So that, that's basically how it works. Um, have you guys used anything like this? Do you have thoughts about it? Yeah, so the, I think the key word you, you mentioned was like the, the trade-off of like, depending on how you configure this thing, you get certain, like there are certain trade-offs. So I think I, I mentioned to you on the dockyard chat, like, you know, it sounds like there's like cap theorem issues around this. We're only talking about one single node right now, but I think that's the key word is the trade-off there. It's like, you can either be more available or you can, uh, or you can lose rights and like you have to know which one of those you want. So it's like, you know, in the, in the, 
in the initial mode where like you always do all rights, it's like, well, we never lose any data, but then your system's not available from someone on the internet. So I think um, it was, you, I think your instincts were right. Like, you know, you mentioned premature optimization, but I think, I think anytime you're like, could someone take this app down from their laptop? And then if the answer is yes, you're like, well, it's, we need to handle it. Um, so I think your instincts, you know, you, to pay this upfront versus a report that, oh, the app's down because someone with curl was able to, you know, take it down uh, was the right intuition. But I think, yeah, around like cap theorem, which is like a rabbit hole we can get into, I think uh, applies here. And, and maybe we could talk about like how this would work multi-node, but, but I think like ultimately it's like you're like, I'm not a cap theorem expert, but it's like either you can be, you it's like cap theorem is consistency, availability, or partition tolerance. And you can't have all three, like because of the laws of physics and the way reality works. Um, so in your case, like, you know, we are favoring having the system be available versus it being consistent. And that means like, if, we are, if we're not consistent, we're, we're losing data. And I think for an attacker scenario, we can lose data. And that's where you have to, you have to actually answer the questions up front. So I think the more people use Elixir and start thinking about distributed problems, like uh, you you necessarily have to know what kind of guarantees you want out of your system. And there's no right or wrong answer, but you have to know to ask, like you have to know what question to ask. Like, what do I actually want here? And in your case, you're like, well, we can lose some rights. And you're like, well, you know, if someone's attacking the site, if they whether they hit us a thousand times in that window or 10 times, like it's not critical to know that specific count, right? It's just, we would like to know over this period of time, are we, are we getting attacked by this user? So I think the uh, the trade-offs there, you have to know upfront and then you just opt into one. And it may feel wrong if you're like, well, I, I can lose rights sometimes, but that's sometimes the answer that you have to have because of the reality of the world. Yeah, and there are types of rights in our system that we definitely wouldn't want to lose. I mean, this is a system where people essentially request work to be done. We never want to drop one of those. But this data, like you said, is we lose some of them we're already under a, a kind of an unusual scenario of being uh, overwhelmed with these requests. You know, if we're being overwhelmed with authentication failure, something weird is happening, and um, it's really just a matter of like, which is worse to <laughs> to record all of the things they're doing to us and die because of it, <laughs> or maybe not right. record all of them and not die because of it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a whole topic like it's like called load shedding, where you could actually try to try to perform all work and then you detect you're under load and you actually start shedding that load. So like you're more consistent when you can be, but then you still ultimately enter that same window of losing stuff. But I think, I think being able to, like you said, there are certain cases where you absolutely can't lose rights. Like thinking about that upfront drives the architecture. Like Mike and I um, worked on a architecture for a client kind of around this idea. I mean, like upfront, we were like, you know, what it is, like, what are we trying to build? And what are what are the scale um, requirements? And that kind of drove how we built everything. And part of this um, part of this thing we did uh, had this requirement, like, well, this thing um, needs to be entirely consistent because we were like leasing out um, uh, claims on an item. And if we if we wanted to become more available, like everyone rushes in to get a claim, like we could scale that, but then multiple people could end up with the same claim, right? So it can't it can't we couldn't focus on availability. As its, as its own self because it had to be consistent. So 
it informs how you scale the system because if you're like, well, it has to be consistent where like, you're then you're then scaling like uh, horizontally on your deploys, right? Because you're like, well, we can we have to handle this in one place because it has to be consistent, whether that one place is the database or an Elixir process somewhere talking to the database that informs kind of how you allot resources on the cluster. And if it has to be in one place, then you know that, okay, I'm provisioning instances to handle these things. And then you can kind of plan from there versus kind of just like not thinking about it up front, putting it in the database till it becomes slow and then you have to work backwards. So I think it thinking about these kind of guarantees really helps drive, I think, what you're architecting in Elixir. Yeah. Y'all talked about some of the stuff, the, the specific project you're referring to, y'all talked about that internally. I think, Mike, you're going to do a talk related to that. I don't know if you're going to get into the technical details or not. Can we tease that? Uh, you're hoping to do that it, talk. I'm hoping to. It's, uh, it, it was uh, one of the submissions for ElixirConf. So yeah, well, uh, we, might, we, we might see. I don't know when those will be announced, but uh, yeah. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, that'll be one of the things we get into is that, that sort of stuff if we we do do that talk. Yeah, that was a really fun internal discussion. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, hopefully we can share some of that publicly. But I, I'm interested on on the multi-node scenario. I, I don't, I'm assuming multi-node is not you only de you're deploying this to one node currently. That's an accurate statement. Yes. So currently, we're we're deploying this particular piece of the system just just one node. So yeah, it's thinking about if we had multiple nodes, like if they were being load balanced or something then we would hit the database twice as much, essentially. Like, okay, yeah, so it's still, it still works, though. Like, you're still debalancing, and then you could even upsert to do, um, you could even collapse those counts. Like, instead of clobbering last right wins on the debalance, you could actually, you were load balancing the same user to different, as you're incrementing those counts, you could actually upsert in Postgres to even save those, those values. So, um, yeah, so that's still that's the model still works there. Whereas like, yeah, for other other times you may have to. So you can still be consistent as well, at least when you actually perform the right. Um, and the other times, like I, I gave a talk on rate limiting, where if you have nodes that are um, doing things and not writing to a consistent store at some point, someone's going to overwrite one another. And sometimes that's OK. And sometimes it's not like in, our, in your case, it may be OK if that happened because it's not mission critical data. But if it's financial data, then you got to come up with a solution for it. Yeah, the way I've got it set up right now, like if two different nodes each got 10 writes in the same period, you would just have two different rows that each say 10, like each have each say count 10. And then you'd have to kind of like re, re if you really want to know the right answer, you'd have to say, oh, well, these two were during the same period, add them up. Right. Um, but for your purposes, like this is more like a forensic analysis, not not like how many sales did you make? Yeah, um, but I think hopefully this code never becomes important. <laughs> well, I mean, it it serves. Yeah, I mean, it's serving the role. Like you said, it, it's one. It's it's not. It's logging bad things, but also not taking down production, because that's the other thing. Like you don't want to instrument your system to make sure like when stuff goes bad, you know about it, and by doing that, it makes stuff go bad. <laughs> like defeats the purpose. So I think it's the right approach. Um, <clears throat> I do think there are probably ways to optimize your optimization <laughs> if you're here if you want to talk about that maybe and maybe you're i haven't i haven't been part of this project but i think um one thing that came to mind with you're talking to a gen server and i think my understanding of this particular client is 
uh, I just want to be clear. Like, I think what you currently have written is probably all that's needed. So this is kind of getting into the weeds, but we are putting a single gen server. It sounds like in front of um, web requests, which I think what I understand about this um, current client, this is totally fine. But if you're at like very high scale, that could become a bottleneck. Uh, so there are a few things that you could do here. One, you could have more processes. Uh, then you kind of get into the distributed case, but happening on the same node, which I, I think could would just work kind of how we said. But the other easier option, I think, is you could um, have the have this uh, queue or sorry, this um, debound server write to an ETS table and the web request caller will actually will just check ETS to say, have I actually um, do I have a pending item with account? already like have i talked to this already and, and I'm, am i currently being debounced so you could actually you could actually do this kind of it's offloading where you don't talk to the server if you know that it's currently debouncing you um then you, you still have to worry about like well do i need to tell about the count about the count and you could allow writers to actually write to ets you get into potential data consistency issues there but again uh you give yourself availability so uh it's just some thoughts there around like putting a process in front of all requests could be bad you could offload that by just not calling the process. And usually ETS is a way to do that. But then if you're offloading state into ETS, then you have state in, in two different places. So there's, again, trade-offs is the key word. Yeah. Uh, another maybe option would be to use, is it phash, where you, you could like take the value and figure out which one of the debouncers to call? Yeah, but... so <clears throat> that's one of the, yeah. So like you you either, like if you have a, if you have a process scaling problem, you either add more processes or you talk to the process less. And like, those are your only options. So yeah, one of the common approaches we like to do is if you want to start more processes um, and you can't talk to them randomly, like you could randomly say, just pick one. But then in this case, they need to know who they're debouncing. So you could, Erlang has a phash function where you could just say, take the user ID and hash it. And that will tell you which of the n shards that you've configured you're going to go to. Um, and that's happening. Like we do that in Phoenix PubSub. I think Elixir's registry is doing partitioning similarly internally. Uh, so that's a strategy. That's what the strategy Mike and I use in this um, application that we may or may not be able to talk about at, at Elixir Comp. Um, where we are sharding, um, we are sharding the cluster horizontally as needed, and we we pick who to talk to based on, you know, a an ID. And it's like, well, talk to this server, and that allows you to kind of plan for scale but not dynamically scale so um but you know a, a deploy later if you're like well i need more of these then you just bump the value cool yeah anytime you have like a, a hashing kind of situation where you you're hashing to decide which of these three things i'm going to send something to and then you add more add more options you have to you have to go back and, and change how you're hashing, right? So now you're hashing among five options or whatever, right? You have to, yeah, it you depends. have to tear down, I mean, tear down the nodes. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, what's actually where the data that you're, yeah, the data that you're hashing on can, um, could just be like one um, primary key ID. And then if the data structure changes, that would still, that should still reasonably balanced on, on the shards, depending on the type of ID you're using. Um, but if you change the shard size, you have to let like, you have to bring everything down. So that's the only thing that's a hard stop of like, if they're now six instead of five, uh, if you don't tell other 
servers about it, then they're going to send it to the wrong, the wrong place. And then you have a consistency issue because the server will probably accept it and be like, yep, I am shard five, even though, you know, product five should be now going to shard six instead. So that's the only caveat. But what I found is like Elixir scales well enough that instead of like worrying about auto scaling, you're just like, well, what's our expected traffic? We need five servers. And if you're like, well, five is too slow. You're like, okay, add two more. And you increase the shard size and you deploy and then you're good for a year has been my experience. Nice. It's not entirely uh, <clears throat> comparable to what you're doing, but um, there was a Ruby library that I wrote years ago because we were using um, different error logging solutions at the time. Um, I thought, I think one of them was, uh, I forget the name of it, but ThoughtBot wrote it. And the pricing, the monthly pricing on the error logging as a service was incredibly high. Like it seems like all these like error logging services, they kind of like use their business model price points um, justification that, you know, if your critical mission, like mission critical system goes down, you're losing more money than you know, you otherwise would have saved if you use the error logger and you quickly fix it, and get back and, you know, back up and running. So <clears throat> just looking at these things, it's like, ah, oh, these are too expensive. So I wrote this, uh, it was really a Rails engine, um, but um, called PartyFowl. And what it did was it would overload the, uh, I forget what the standard error or whatever the like ultimate, like somewhere in Ruby is like crazy, graph of object inheritance at one point there's like an error object that ultimately derives into all types of errors and you can overload that and basically call out the party file and what it would do was um it would log to github and on errors and so uh we would get into a thing a, get, where a github issue right like an issue a github issue yes yeah a issue and so early iterations of this like we maxed out the API calls. This was earlier on in GitHub too, where they were, I assume they were more permissive before they would shut you down than now. Like there was one that I remember we opened up like a thousand issues in five minutes or something like that. And so what we started to do was, um, you know, trying to determine how errors are related to one another and uh, king off of that. And so, well, again, Nathan, while this isn't like super related to what you're talking about, it did remind me that what we what we ended up doing was we we look at certain uh, aspects of the request, like this, um, I think the action, controller, uh, a few other things. We take all those things, those unique pieces, and we would hash that and we come up with a unique symbol and we would search the existing issues to see if this hash existed or not. And if it didn't, then we would create a new issue. We would inject the hash as a meta piece of metadata in there. And then if a new uh, error occurred that had the matching hash, we would just add a new comment with some relevant like query params in there. Um, in theory, that made a lot of sense. But what we quickly realized is that sometimes when these errors are happening, they're happening faster than the GitHub API can respond to tell us that this is a unique issue or not. 
<laughs> and so, you know, we would be really nice to have uh, some of those debouncing options back then in the Ruby times, or maybe they existed. They just weren't that, uh, you know, as well thought out on the Elixir side of things. I just realized a second ago that that because I was muted, the audio version of this podcast will not record that I was laughing <laughs> when you started talking about it. opening yeah. GitHub issues for every error. I was thinking that has got to be a violation of the terms and conditions. Yeah. I wonder, you know, hold on, let me look it up. Because I, I, it's still out there. I don't know if people are still downloading it. Let's see. I think I was aware of it prior to joining Dockyard. I think it came across my radar as in the Ruby community. I mean, it's pretty convenient unless you have these like, idea. unless you have like a million issues in. But it is convenient if you're like, you know, you can actually close out that issue in a commit. Like, it's a feature. Like, you know, yeah, one, it's great, but also pretty convenient unless you've got yeah. like three hundred thousand comments on an issue or something. It gotta be careful. It's funny you mentioned that because we're we're actually dealing with a similar issue with. Uh, with the current client um, on logging and, and turning those into issues with with uh, app signal because the by default their elixir plug plugin uh, it it the the unique it based it's based on the unique name but the name is the name of the uh, elixir error so like all of the function clause errors are thrown together which is completely useless because you can have you know ten different issues that are totally different things and you know uh, undefined function error or you know uh, uh, ecto uh, query uh, cast error so so we just basically we had like four errors and there was just each error had like a million different ish uh, instances and they're all different things going wrong so you couldn't like track it well so um, I pushed uh, uh, forked, forked it and tried tr tried some stuff and basically took the entire string of the error the message and made that the name. Well, now the problem is the same issue happens, you know, a hundred times with different PIDs or different timestamps, and now you know they're all there. So, trying to figure out some sort of, uh, like you said, Brian, trying to figure out what 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 is a different issue and what what is the same issue is is uh, something that I think they're working yeah. on from their end. So, I mean, there's there's two ways to do it. Either you go through that pain of having to normalize and unique them so that you can offer a higher signal to noise ratio for people to wade through, or you just log everything and right. say, okay, you know, there's a screw up somewhere. Now we got to dig through it to figure out what it is. Cause I, I think that uh, you're, if you start, my, my recollection was like, as soon as you start going down, trying to group together errors and like really like force, uh, some of them to say these fall into like a similar error bucket, mm. you're going to have things fall through the cracks. Uh, but I, I mean, it, it's a trade. I mean, you know, this goes back to the Christmas saying it's a trade off on all things. Like, do you care about catching the 80% of things and getting it done fast? Or do you care about like that last 20% sometimes? I mean, these, the show stopping ones, I don't think are really going to be that effective to have the error logging in place because the show stopping one is, um, I mean, you're going to know pretty quickly, you know, where that's occurring. If, it, if it's bringing down the server, um, if it's, you know, just like users not using the application the way that you intended and you're just like logging, like all these, uh, you know, all these routes are just blown up for some reason. 
Like that's where I think the error logging services are more useful, especially when it comes to, um, you know, outside of regular feature development cycles where you're just like, okay, we got to catch up on the backlog of, you know, where, you know, things are rough. Yeah, I wonder, it's in, in having, uh, you know, waded through a lot of these errors, I wonder if the, if something like the, the, the last five or so lines of the stack trace would be something would be unique enough to to say this is this is its own issue right because if they if you're if you're yeah. hitting an issue issues on a single line or generally the same issue or, or or variations of the same issue um it might we didn't use we didn't end up using the stack trace for party file we would embed the stack trace you know we capture it mm -hmm. and then put it in there but um yeah it, it could um, yeah, I mean, it's not an incentive with these um, services, though, to they want you to be granular, I'm assuming, because they're paying you're paying on requests or storage. So it's probably part of the problem. Okay. Like the defaults are probably pretty noisy. I mean, one, because it, I guess it's better to have everything than by them for default, have you lose stuff, but or co coalesce things. But I think this is a problem in general, actually. So if Ian is listening, uh, I had uh, someone recently, I, they exhausted like their million requests. Uh, I don't know if it was Datadog, it was one of these services. Um, the, the Phoenix JS has an on, on error uh, hook on the socket that you can say like if the socket has an error like connecting or it drops, it gets invoked. And he put like a Datadog client side uh, report of JavaScript errors in there. And it turns out, like as your live view tokens expire uh, in the background, it's gonna those tabs are still gonna try to connect because you get booted, you reconnect it, it says the token is valid, it, so the connection isn't upgraded, so then it tries again, and like it uses exponential backoff. But he like deployed this mm -hmm. and then like exhausted a million requests because of X amount of users out there with tabs open very quickly. So like seemingly he was like, I want more insight into my connections. And it was like, it's like a million uh, requests sent off to the API and um, goodbye, uh, whatever plan he was on. So I think this, this rate limiting problem is interesting, but I'm surprised though that like, you think if a service got, especially from a client side, like, you know, anyone could just write a for loop. You think if they got like the same data from the same client or IP that they would at least try to filter that. but Apparently, whatever service this was, you could just from any client exhaust someone's tier of pricing. Yeah, that's 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 interesting because yeah, like like you said, if if it's if it's going from a, someone's browser, then anyone anywhere could could trigger those. So uh, there's got to be some sort of uh, protection in there or or something I'm missing. Nope. But I guess not yeah. for this. Um, so yeah, it was surprising. So yeah. I think yeah, it was just you add like an on air and you're like oh. There's an error report it and then it was like well right. this could be called like you know we do like 10 milliseconds 10, 000, yeah. 50 milliseconds 80 milliseconds so like every client you know is like within yeah. one second has tried 10 times to reconnect and then it gets slower and slower <laughs> but you can see that like any tab at scale is like bad news yeah there's so there's the what you're talking about there that there's the issue so at least with the systems that were the uh, app signal we're working with i think century is similar is you send everything off from each incident happens and gets sent off regardless. And they're just kind of grouped on the, on their end based on, I think, so app signal groups it based on whatever name you send. So 
as far as and and I believe they're all they're all costed out of their price tiers are based on number of incidents sent, not necessarily the grouping. So regardless of whether you unless you were to catch a bunch of them locally and only send one, you'd still be paying the same regardless of whether the, the grouping is accurate or not, whether you know. But yeah, it's uh it'd be it'd be nice for nice to I I think I had better better um experience with this in, in Century. It was pretty pretty accurate as far as figuring out what's a, what error is different. Um, yeah, this is so. a problem too. I, I won't name the service, but I have, I've been made aware that Elixir applications, I guess, completely destroy like the agent that runs on a server for one of these reporting services. Like it reports errors faster than the agent can report them upstream and like actually takes it out um, and crashes the box. And which kind of goes to Nathan's debouncing thing. So I don't know, I haven't looked at the source. I think it's written in Rust. Uh, since it's, it's an embedded agent that listens for errors and then reports them. Um, yeah, or a, a, there's a NIF. Um, okay, yeah, and I don't, like yeah. I said, I won't name the service, but it actually, like, I'm assuming they're not debouncing. And again, this goes into like, well, if the agent debounces, it's, and it doesn't send an HTTP request to yeah. collapse, you know, a bulk request, it, it could potentially miss some things, but, Instead, it just completely falls over and takes the server out. So um, Elixir is too fast for, I think, one of these native uh, things running uh, just because it can't keep up uh, with what's being sent to it. But again, like this is the problem. So it's like, do you want your whole server to go out or do you want to remain available? And it's like, well, then you have to you have to make a choice. And apparently, I mean, they made the choice in the agent, but it's just funny that it's like a, a native implementation and still can't keep up. But I thought, according to that one guy's website, that Elixir was much slower than Rust and all these other languages and frameworks. What's yeah. going I mean, on? That, you're trolling, but that comes up on Hacker News a lot too about <laughs> Elixir and Erlang being slow. And like, yeah, it's so loaded, but you're like, yeah, I don't know. It's like if you're sending something to a single threaded NIF that makes a HTTP request, like, you know, and, and does a blocking does blocking work, then it's going to fall over immediately. So it's like, yeah, there's a ton of nuance to that slowness, but it definitely grinds my gears. And now that we have NX, though, it's like we are we are competitive on most fronts. Oh, I would even say it's exceeding. I mean, the the interesting thing with the NX project is I know that they're catching up on ground that took time to be researched and developed. And so I'm maybe out of place to say that there isn't a lot of original work going on. It's like, you know, catching up to the current, to the state of the art of what Python other languages have. But that being said, the uh, pace in which they're catching up is like ridiculously impressive. Um, I mean, this is, Keep in mind, these these spaces are areas that you have multi-billion dollar companies funding the research and development on. And the NX project is, I mean, it's, you know, one guy working part-time that works for the army and then working on a part, like in between his army business, he's working on it. And then Joe's was like, what, six, six months old? Like, it's not very old. Like, they, they it's not like they've- No, they started, yeah, those, less than a year ago. Jose and uh, and Sean got connected. I want to say December um, of 2020. It was November or December, and I don't think they even started 
like writing anything until maybe the new year. Um, and then like with Livebook too. Um, my understanding is that Livebook is functionally going to have more going on for it than Jupyter Notebooks will because they're going to have, uh, I don't know if it's being worked on yet, but Jose was making mention of multi-language support. I don't know if that may have been something they just dropped as like nice to have, but um, like running all these different languages in, in the, the live books, if that is actually going to be in scope, um, you know, I think would be you know, really, really impressive. But with just collaboration, I mean, I, I'm not in the Jupyter right. space. It's my understanding that they don't have collaboration. I think there was a, there's a startup that was on Hacker News that had like X millions of dollars in funding. That's essentially just a collaborative notebook platform. And like they did it in Livebook in like six months. Like, I, I mean, it's just with again, well, like, like six one months of like working on it when they can, right? It's not like right. actual dedicated. So I think, time to yeah, it. the pace with Livebook is incredible. And then, uh, so Mike used it uh, earlier in the day to show off to the whole company something he's been working on. And I, I messaged Jose because, like, it's the first time I've seen someone in earnest just use Livebook, like, versus like, okay, look at this new feature on Livebook and talking about the details of how it works. Like Mike would just used it to like a bunch of Elixir and non-Elixir people. And it was really, mm. really neat just to see it used as like a product. And everyone was just like, oh, what what website? Like, did you make a website for like this whole presentation? And it's like, no, this is like, I don't know. It was just really neat seeing it used in the real world in earnest outside of like worrying about the details of how it works. So it's just like, yeah. Mike had like documented code explaining what was going on. Then he executed that. We got to see it in real time. So it was really interesting from a non-developer um, viewer point of view, like everyone at large kind of got to see what was going on and, and understand it visually, which versus like going to the terminal and, and tweaking stuff. So I thought that was really neat. One thing I haven't seen, and Mike, Mike, we spoke about this briefly, was uh, training in Elixir mm -hmm. uh, using Livebook. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like it's just the most obvious use case for it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that's, you know, like Chris said, you know, um, I'm working on this, this side project and I was like, all right, well, you know, if I'm going to release this, I need to go through and do a readme and like explain what's going on and how to do it and stuff. And I was like, well, instead of, you know, a readme, which um, I will you know, eventually have a readme, but, I just started with a with a, a live book, and you know, in in the live book itself, uh, you know, there's some third party app or there's some some things that need to be installed. And so, in the live book, the first line in the live book is, you know, calling system dot command uh, brew install whatever. And so, like, you can get you can you can take those steps, even the the setup steps in your in that, and then get into actually, all right, this is the code. This is the this is what you would. You would add this to your mix file. We're going to use mix.install in this live book, and it does that, and you get right into it, and you're you're often running code. Can so. you uh, can you get push gig elixir on live book? Like, is it built so you can deploy quickly to gig elixir, or do you have to go through like a still jump through some hoops for if you want to host it? You could like shell out. I mean, I don't think you could make like a button yet. I know that they're working on like a component type like. You could actually have a button that like does something, um, but you could. I mean, worst case, you could actually just like system command get push, kick <laughs> elixir, right? Yeah, right. Well, no, no. So I, mean, I, mean, I mean, from within the live book. I mean, are the dependencies of live book such that it like would not work out of the box on gig elixir right now? 
well, there's a security issue, right? If I'm understanding it correctly, like if you have access to Livebook and you can run it, you can do anything on that system. And so, so the right, idea right, of even okay. having a hosted Livebook, I don't think at this point makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, you you could lock it down like the the urls are signed and then you could put authentication in front of it so a publicly hosted one yeah you're just you're basically <laughs> the floodgates are open to um the root the system but right. um but yeah you could put you know authentication in front of it and then anyone that has access to that box with authentication can do anything they want into that machine rmrf yeah so gosh. it's like with those caveats of like yeah. you get access to it, you have access to the world, then you could deploy it. So Mike, for your thing, you're thinking people will download, like clone your, your live book plus project repo and run it on their own machine. And that's why you're, you've got the install and everything. Right. Yeah. And, and I think if I'm thinking of it correctly, I think as long as they have live book on their system, like the, the, you know, the, the global install, um, they would just need all they would actually need is the live book um dot is it dot readme dot, there's a whatever the, the live uh live live md i think live md yeah and you can uh, so import, you can give it that url like your right. empty live book you give it the url of mike's live md file and then it's just like boom yeah. there it is exactly yeah and so then and then like i said you know what the, the first step is, well the first step is installing this other stuff but then you know if you wanted to to demonstrate your whatever your package is you mix that install right out of hex and so they don't even need your repo they just need your live book and then the within the within that uh, project the live book session you know it'll get pulled down and installed so yeah it's it's cool it's, it was it was really nice and it's only took only took a couple hours to put together the the live book and you know what was interesting was so well, the first thing I was do was I was like, oh, well, we want to show them how to install this on on Brew, and my first stab at um, spinning up a live book was just run the Docker container. Well, the problem is the Docker container is its own little, its own internal thing, which doesn't have Brew, and so my local machine that did have it, I was assuming it would it would tie into that, and it didn't. So um, I did end up going with the the, the hex uh, archive install option uh but yeah that that then allows it to be run from anywhere so. and then uh, before we ever run out of time i did have if we wanted to loop back to nathan's original problem and i, I don't even know if it's, it's cap theorem but i i think i had another thought earlier around uh this idea of like thinking up front about like you've got something uh happening a lot or a series of things happening and then you take a step back and you're like well what's important to actually um record what happened or do the side effect of the things that have happened and i think you can generalize this thought process to designing any elixir application because what we're seeing in a new client project i started is a a problem that we've seen in another project or many projects but um i don't know if we've talked previously on other um, media outlets but like we had one client project that came in in the elixir app we inherited it it took six days to run this um indexing process and we cut it down to six hours using the same Postgres database, same Postgres schema, um, just because what was happening was they had all these things happening as uh, as the um, program indexed uh, a bunch of data. And um, I think people coming from non-preemptive scheduled languages think that anytime they need to do something, a bit of work asynchronously, they need to go do that somewhere. And just that one piece of work 
because it's expensive to hold a thread open. Uh, in Ruby, you know, you only have a certain amount of workers. Even if you have a concurrent threaded language, you only have a certain amount of threads. So what we see happen is people come to Elixir and they're like, well, I have to perform this bit of work. I need to go run that uh, as a task in a process somewhere. So they start a ton of processes to do this one little bit of work. And that while processes are cheap, that can scale very poorly, especially if all those are then talking to the database or doing a bunch of work that needs to be coordinated among the processes. And that's how you go from an Elixir app that takes six days to six hours, where we took a step back and we said, like, what's important to actually happen? You have all these things that need to happen, but where do they make sense to happen together? So kind of like Nathan's um, persisting at the end, like you get you have this window, and then what's important is the side effect of the things that happen over this window is what we want to insert to the database, not each individual one. So it, from like a job queue standpoint, I think it's important to take a step back and say, okay, like when we were indexing uh, this thing in the database, we had transactions and then those transactions had a bunch of like receipts on them and it was creating a job for the transaction. It was creating a job to go through every receipt. Those receipts had uh, another thing in the database that had to be created. So instead of let's say a hundred, uh, individual Elixir processes that all insert data in the database uh, over the network over and over and over. We said like, well, what's really important is we have a transaction, right? A bunch of things need to happen. We've got to hit external APIs to index and populate the data. And then at the end, we represent this parent transaction with all of its receipts and data, and we send that off to Postgres. Um, and that one bit of work was a large bit of work, but thinking about how it actually fits, whether it's like error reporting, like we were talking about, like how do you actually group this data together to what really matters, and then you push that off to the expensive thing. Um, I think applies to everything in Elixir if you're trying to operate at scale, whether it's error reporting, whether it's just ingesting user traffic, you know, if you're sending a, a comment into the user, uh, or if you're sending a piece of data into the system and that comment needs to be indexed by the search engine, needs to be sent into Postgres, needs to send the email to someone, like you need to think about like what needs to happen completely separately or what can we actually collapse as like, okay, this thing happens, do all the work. You can be expensive as you want. You can block as long as you want because a process is preemptively scheduled. So it's kind of a brain dump there where I think this, this one um, debouncing case is actually a broader like um, paradigm in the language that we could probably generalize. Yeah, and what you said there also kind of reminded me of something that it's about like looking at the problem at the right level because uh, I, I worked on a system at one point that was dealing with some scheduling stuff. And this is actually in Ruby, but as sort of the single responsibility principle, they had broken the system down into such small objects, like everything had its own tiny little thing to do. But the problem was every one of those little objects was querying the database. And so, um, you know, big picture, what we needed was to grab all the data we want that's part of this report or whatever, and then do stuff with it. <laughs> and not, you know, so like the, the responsibility is grab all the data. So like really running one query versus running a ton of queries was was a huge change to the system. It went from like unusable to to like you don't notice how fast, like it just happens. Like you don't know, you can't notice it executing. Um, and and you know just thinking about the big picture and where to break things down uh, is is such an important like architecture thing. Yeah, absolutely. That was a yeah, much simpler way than um, what I said. But yeah, like you said, do do things up front that make sense, and then do the the extensive work. But I think that's why you hear in the community like job queues versus you don't need a job queue is like 
job queues matter, but only when like you actually want to do this one bit of work and have it be durable and have it be retried. But it may make sense um, to not do that and just start a process that does all the work or make one job that actually does a bunch of stuff. So I think it's like, that's why there's this, this back and forth in the community where it's like, I think it, it is important to step back and not just like, oh, put everything in a job, but people don't really hear the, the nuance of like, you actually have to think like, what are you trying to do? Cool. Anything else we want to talk about? Nobody has made note of my high definition camera. I'm very upset. I have no idea if it actually I mean, looks high definition on everyone else's screen. But we got to we got to see you eat uh, cereal in in high def. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I bought I bought this uh, ring light thing and I got my phone hooked up to it using a prog program called Camo something and it basically uses my phone as the camera and it works pretty good. And then I saw. Uh, maybe yesterday or the day before, uh, the new MacBook Pros coming out in the fall, I guess, are finally supposed to bump up the uh, the FaceTime camera to 1080p, I believe. They're currently like 720p, and they've been that way for about 10 years now. Um. Anyway, I uh, I wanted to solicit some compliments on my <laughs> definition camera setup. It, it, it definitely looks it definitely looks higher definition, although your the color has been a little weird. I don't know if, if others are seeing that. I'm sunburnt. Like, no, I'm sunburnt. No, but you've been like getting more and less sunburnt sometimes. During oh, well, I think it's quite the ring light. I think if I go forward and back, oh yeah, maybe just go. be adjusting it. It's probably <laughs> also just like how the iPhone tries to optimize the picture because it's just using whatever lens setup the iphone has so i like on this app i think actually i don't know if i can change yeah. it while it's so like nathan you're like yeah it looks clear but just something like in this area is just very it awesome. looks clear it just sucks <laughs> okay, no, here i am i'm, I'm leaving your... goodbye goodbye just goodbye your face goodbye. is so horrible <laughs> not, not so you much to... here, but right <laughs> yeah. here just like exactly. somewhere in between it here looks, yeah, it's it looks <laughs> did you update your google i mean who knows what the what meat is doing as well like it's probably downscaling Oh, so it looks bad. It doesn't look high definition. No, I mean, it, it, looks, it looks fine. I mean, what's your... It looks fine. What, yeah, no big deal. What are your camera settings, like send resolution? Oh, send resolution max. Is there, yeah, let's go high definition. Oh, it maxes there, out 720. Sun, sun okay, so you may be already exceeding what it can do. I mean, it, it looks good. I think I would say that it looks better than our other squares. I'm trying to bring a little bit... I'm trying to step up our game on the, <laughs> yeah. the Elixir roundtable. I see. So uh, I'm at quality. least in it. I'm at least at a desk versus being in bed from last time. So <laughs> I'm doing my yeah. part. <laughs> my my contribution to our video quality is that I blur my background so you don't focus too much. I on know, clutter. Nathan. I was I was saying you kind of look like a shrinky dink because like it looks like you're cut out. The way that Google like however they're figuring out like what to to cut off. Um, is funny because sometimes if you move around a little bit, I think it, it probably does like some sort of sample that's determine like what hasn't moved, right? And then just okay, we're gonna blur that yeah. section. So like you move your chair, there'll be like this this air this whole like block of area that will um, like jagged edged block that will like, mm -hmm. come into focus for a second and then go blurry again. Like I the zoom uh, 
like the way that Zoom does it, I, I, it's probably like the same underlying like uh, algorithm, but it, it just seems better, like the way that Zoom does it than than Google Meet. It uses it uses hardware acceleration because I know because I, I disabled hardware acceleration for performance reasons, and then it wouldn't let me blur. So, but yeah, it, it uh, there's some interesting stuff. Like I know this this. It, I can like trick it into thinking that the picture in my background is part of. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's, but yeah, yeah. It's just, just it's just AI, right? Yeah. Or, or machine learning, whatever you want to call so it. So we just uh, we just need to get a, a get a green screen for me, and then I, I was looking into that, just like a backdrop. Like there, there's like when you get into it because podcasting and all like the YouTube people, there's some many people trying to get into it there's a whole well it's like that whole uh you know saying like you don't want to be you know one of the guys going out digging for gold you want to be the guy selling the shovel right and same deal with all this this industry is there is so much stuff out there in terms of like just little things you can get like a little surround that is a um like a sound absorbing material and just like pack it around yourself and but turn what is normally a large space into a small space. You can get a green screen, just drop cloth. You can get, I bought this thing, better microphone, but that wasn't that expensive. So it was only like 30 bucks. And I don't even know if it's that much better than my AirPod headphones. But like the whole microphone uh, scene is you can easily go out and spend like thousands of dollars for what seems like like diminishing returns on audio quality. Like at some point, I just stop noticing what the difference is. Maybe like pros will notice, but yeah, it depends on what gear. Yeah, if all you're listening is AirPods, but I like that you're like you know you're aware of these sell shovels, and then you're like, and then I went and I bought a bunch of shovels. <laughs> I know. I spent I spent <laughs> less than a hundred dollars. Okay. I got. I tried out the whole ring ring light thing for a bit, and it just it didn't work. It ended up on my workbench in the in the garage. It's a, it's a light to, for the lathe. Yeah, like yeah, the, so. So I have a simple one. I can there. I can actually cycle through. Yeah, and I think I have yeah. different colors. Here, I'll change the mood. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Good. Put it. Put it on. Uh, put it on uh, Zuckerberg uh, mode. The, yeah. Like, how do light, I look? Light. Like. Goddamn data from Star Trek. <laughs> I think this is actually probably the light I should think like the color I should be using, this one right here. Yeah. At least at least um, with the sunburn kind of things on. Yeah. Let's see if I can show my sunburn. This is really interesting uh, <laughs> for everybody that's watching. Yeah, so I will round start... table topics. <laughs> yeah, well I'll have to do a cut and just be like, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> well, I do have so I do have uh two blog posts that I wanted to bring up. And one of them was actually came today. Um, and I like seeing these blog, I like seeing these type of blog posts because I think that it does a good job of going on evangelizing the language. Uh, and he hits on a lot of the the topics. So I, he was probably on a bunch of places, but I saw it on, um, uh, I think I saw it on Hacker News. Um, this guy, Sergio Matai, uh, he writes a, um, I love Elixir blog post and uh, the subtitle is Elixir made me fall in love with programming again. And I, I mean, you speak in my, you know, you speak my language here. Cause I, I kind of felt the same way. I was, I mean, my last kind of language before Elixir was JavaScript. And we're not going to go down the JavaScript rabbit hole right now. Again, this 
this one. We'll leave JavaScript alone. But the point being is that I was pretty burnt out on it. And Elixir did, you know, kind of uh, refresh me and, you know, kind of bring me back into everyday programming for the most part. But he, he, he kind of, he, uh, he touches on some really good points about uh, previously, I suppose he was not using functional programming and um, kind of getting into that. And then how well, uh, how well built Elixir is from a, um, a tooling perspective and, and all these things. So it's always nice to see other people kind of validating the thoughts that, that I have on why I like Elixir and seeing more posts like that out there. And I would encourage anyone that's listening that or watching that is uh, has not written a post similar to that. Just there's tons out there. We could use some more. So, you know, write about your own personal experience with Elixir. Um, it's always helpful. And then the other one, the other blog post was a surprise blog post because I saw it somewhere. And this has happened twice now. And I'm not trying to make it seem like, you know, Dockyards is some like, amazing, badass place. But I, I go and I've seen blog posts now where I, I go and I read it. It's not on Dockyard's blog. But then I see like, oh, this post was sponsored by Dockyard. <laughs> what is going on here? So there's one called the human side of Elixir. Um, and I still don't have a clear answer if Dockyard wrote this and had it posted on this guy's blog or if he wrote it and Dockyard sponsored him to write it. Uh, but it's kind of like a, um, uh, it's a little, it's a small little tour on, uh, I guess companies that may be interested in using Elixir and, um, what the, uh, you know, what they should expect when it goes going out and, um, going out to hire, if they are going to have success finding, uh, engineers and if not, how they can go about bringing in, um, engineers and train them in Elixir. And I, I thought that uh, was of interest. I'm not sure if any of you guys happen to see those posts or not. Sounds like no. Nobody saw I, I, haven't, <laughs> I, haven't read those I haven't read those. I am pretty one that I'm we pretty sure sponsored. We're, yeah, I'm pretty sure we're not writing this stuff. Uh, I, I mean, they're, they're, I have no idea. The author yeah, that's on there that, is the person who wrote it. That Dockyard just gave them some, yeah, some support. Yeah, we like had access to the Dockyard owner, and we could be like, "Hey, what you know? What's the story here? Who, who wrote this?" But I don't um, know. <laughs> no, <laughs> so they, you have access to the Dockyard but owner. I have there no was idea. one I think live year related that I read that um like yeah, as I was like reading it, it was like sponsored by Dockyard. It was like the first time I was like, "Oh, really? Cool." Like, that might have been the I other no one. Idea. So yeah, I haven't seen those two, but yeah, anything that was that by Lars? Was that the one by Lars? I don't remember. Um, okay. But yeah, any, I think any content, especially around adoption or, you know, you know, evangel, any kind of evangelizing is good. And I think just sharing your successes, failures are okay too, just depending on the title, like the, the failing, um, failing big with live view one was an unfortunate title <laughs> that was that evangelized live view, but it looked like it was a negative article. So I think, any content is good. Sharing experience is good. Be careful with the titles. Yeah, F Elixir, F everyone that ever touched Elixir. And then the blog post is just about how great Elixir is. So that'd, that'd be Chris McCord example of my misleading. Life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever trolls you on Twitter, do they, Chris? Um, Not directly. I usually get myself into... Um, but oh, like do not engage and then I can't re resist like <laughs> I, I, for the public record I've got to cor correct the public record if I know other people may be influenced by something that is uh, that I agree with that would like 
you know, if someone if someone that's not into Elixir or they're Elixir curious reads something and no one came to correct them, then they may not adopt Elixir or Phoenix. So, so sometimes I feel the need to get involved where I probably should stay away. Here's my analogy yeah. on, on getting involved in, in Twitter stuff is that like you resist. It's like like a big bag of like chocolate chip cookies, right? Like you look at this big bag of chocolate chip cookies. We're all in our 40s now. We're pushing 40s. And you know you shouldn't touch the cookies. <laughs> but eventually you're just like, I'll just have one little, one little nibble. And then you're like, all right, I'm in for a nibble. Might as well go for a whole cookie. And before you know it, you're through the whole bag. And you're looking at yourself in the mirror. And you're like, I fucking hate you. <laughs> you're just like, I hate myself. I am a disgusting person. And that's the way. That's that's my analogy for how it is like getting into Twitter arguments and fights. Because it's like, pretty much. It, it, yeah, I know. It's like you just like you gotta treat it as something you have to just. I think if you stay out of it, you you look better than ever getting into it, even with like the defensive. I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone when it comes to jumping into that shit, but um, I recognize that it is not uh, ever done me any good ever. That's true. <laughs> ever. Well, yeah, not me personally. I know that it's an, it's going to be a loss for me no matter what, but it's like m yeah. maybe other random internet users out there will read this and be like, oh, I will try live view. So we'll You're see. Sacrificing yourself for the greater good. Exactly. That's basically a live view story. <laughs> somebody writes a post I'll... where somebody writes a post where they're like, I set up my Phoenix app where every request goes through a single gen server and it sucked. You're like, therefore Phoenix sucks. <laughs> like, I have to correct this. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean I try to be fair too. Like I don't try to come in too too fired up to things, but it just depends on the time of the day. What I if I'm in yeah, frustrated all day with other things, and it's like, all right, here we go. It's the same with parenting, right? Like, <laughs> try not to bring frustration back to the kids. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I I uh, I have, have have recently I'm losing shouting matches to a two and a half year old, and it is just it puts you in your place pretty quickly, but also teaches all right, you know, maybe that's not the right way. Yeah. For sure. All right, guys. Uh, I think we should probably wrap it, but uh, this was a good discussion. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we kept the JavaScript rants to a minimum today. I, I look forward Next to- Next time. Uh, yeah, I know there's <laughs> another time. one queued up, so- We got a doozy. Next time, more JavaScript rants on <laughs> yeah. Elixir Roundtable. AKA Anti-JavaScript Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna get more people mad at Chris. <laughs> I think if we rebrand it as the anti-JavaScript podcast, we'd probably get more people watching and listening. That that's definitely a little broader in scope, right? That's 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 sure. the marketing. People tend habit. to rally around it. Yeah, I think in yeah. what the missing nuance there is a lot of the, a lot of that uh, a lot of that venting is like therapy, especially like yeah. Brian and I. You gotta get it off your chest. We've been in the weeds of pain and misery. Uh, so, so everyone else doesn't have to. So I think a lot of it, like we may be coming on unfairly. It may seem like, oh, they're a little too harsh, but this is all from like lived experience. So just keep but that in But it's also mind. like, I'm just sometimes so blown away that <laughs> things are that bad. It's like kind of like, you know, seeing a car, you know, a car accident. Like, did you see this? Like, yeah, I got to tell you about this. This is, this is actually real. This is actually happening. And, um, 
But I, in addition to therapy, I think in two, it's also, uh, you know, good to kind of justify why certain decisions are being made on on certain things. And so it's not just like, ah, oh, screw it. You know, there's history behind certain things. That's true. So stay tuned for next next yeah, time. We're, so that's we're speaking hand. in code right now. In every way, if you can read between the lines, like they'll they should go out and try to figure out, you know, just come up with the creative theories, put it on my Elixir status hashtag, and then we'll read the theories on, on the next Elixir round table. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. Have a uh, good afternoon. Bye. Thanks. Good one.